Nathan, good to see you. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, man, I'm excited for this. Let's go right in. Let's go right in. Welcome back to the Bridges Between Us podcast. Today, we're talking with Reverend Nathan Collarman. I know Nathan through a mutual friend, and I've been following his content for a couple years now. His work is powerful, and so is this conversation. We talk about the wildness of the world today, some of the challenges he's faced this year, like facing the grief of his mom's death and the joys and depths of what he's been working on lately, like his book. I invited Nathan onto this podcast a couple months ago after seeing him post about his decision to go to Arcadia Music Festival while moving through deep grief around that loss and while the world was on fire with the wake of the October 7th massacre happening just a couple weeks beforehand. So in this conversation, we dove into questions around what the actual value of art and festival could possibly be at times of crisis. And where do our struggles with being able to tap into each productively these days root from? And what the hell can we do to build a better world together? Thanks for being here. Let's dive in. So I saw you post on your Instagram story like a week or so ago saying you despise the question, what do you do? So I'd love to start with what do you think is a better question? I think it's what are you creating? Who are you? Yes. And what are you creating? What are you inspired about? What are you passionate about? What's the thing that makes you tick? And what are you really here to do? Like that for me lights me up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, when I think about when I walk into a room and there's a bunch of people there, that's what I really want to know. And that's usually what a lot of people are, are really asking when they say, what do you do? They're asking, what do you care about? Where do you spend your time? What do you think about day to day? What are your like skills and experiences? How might I connect with the things you care about? Yeah, because that's really what we want. And it's our own biases that might hold us back. I, I catch myself in that all the time like these giant networking events and stuff like that. I'm wildly uncomfortable there. And most people would never know this because I'm very much a social creature because I've trained myself to be <laughs> over years and years of a ton of introverted tendencies. And when I started shifting like introversion to extroversion and not so much a personality trait, but more so just right as Jung states, like in the, digesting and processing of information, it all shifted for me. Cause then I was like, I stopped calling myself an introvert and I stopped acting like an introvert. And then I started actually, Oh wow, <laughs> I can actually connect to people now and I'm just getting the information. This is great. <laughs> it's like being on a playground, right? You, you weren't like six or seven years old being like, Hey, what do you do? It's right. like, Hey, do you want to come play? What do you like to play? Do you like to do soccer? Do you like to do the swings? I just want to find something that we have in common. So that way we can be friends. Right? Like, where did that go? <laughs> I have this game that I want to play. Will you play it with me? Do you know how? Do you want to? And then they'd be like, no. And be like, okay, on to the next. <laughs> yeah. And that's really it. That's really it. <laughs> Dude, yeah. all right. So what are you creating right now? What is it that is lighting your life? What's getting you out of bed and into life these days? Man, I'm writing my book. Oh yeah. I, about a month ago, I went into an immersion with my publisher and we wrote the entire rough draft in five days. I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, beautiful. And 
it's been an experience ever since that immersion. I probably put about six or 7,000 words in the book. I'm about 36,000 right now, five more chapters. And then the final draft goes to the editor and man, it's going to be life-changing, not only for myself, but just everyone who reads it since it does encompass the more complex and nuanced aspects of life, death, and suicide and hmm. addressing not just the symptoms and it's not the typical self-help. It's not the love and light fairies came and waxed the pages for me. It's the rawness and the realness and the darkness and what I would consider to be the genre I think, think mm. I'm creating is what I consider to be psychological poetry and to really help people through those challenging times and to resonate with something that most of society isn't saying, right? Like the book between two worlds is fundamentally the thing that gets me out of bed that my kids creating stronger relationships with them. We've got our leadership Academy where we're doing great work. I'm creating amazing friendships, creating amazing opportunities. And all of it is just impact. Like, mm. how can I impact as many people as I can today? And how can I do it in respect to what I consider to be the good ways? Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about, man. And you were kind enough to share a couple early chapters of your book, which I read through. And that, that commitment to truth really rings through. Like it, it flows and you can tell you are really committing to like, <laughs> I always think about Ernest Hemingway and he would say like, when I'm writing, I bleed on the page. And when I can't think of what to write, I just think of how do I write one true sentence? And I, I, mm -hmm. everything I read that you sent me over really hit a lot of that, man. So kudos. Thank you. It's funny is that I actually wrote at Hemingway's memorial in Sun Valley. Really? Yeah, That's man. Wild. So, <laughs> maybe That's you get so a little funny. text of Hemingway in there. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. That just came up. <laughs> hey, man, that's a compliment. So I'm here for it, man. And if I'm not bleeding in what I'm doing, then is it really worth it? Yeah. There's yeah. not blood, sweat, and tears. I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. It's well, too I, easy. I, and I don't think you're alone in that, right? Like, I think if we're all really honest with ourselves, um, I think we, we know that we are drawn to what is real. And that's what we're drawn to with artists and musicians and influencers and speakers when somebody makes us feel a little bit more alive because they're owning and embodying their truth so clearly and deeply there's something about that then speaks to us where we go oh i should be interested in this this might be somebody i can really trust this might be somebody important that i should learn something from or that maybe i, I should follow or i should at the very least listen to and i think we see that in even just general patterns of the content people consume, like the way podcasts have blown up and the way that comedy is getting this new wave. There's a reason we're, we're drawn to comedians and it's because they are committed to trying to point at things that are true that we might not be looking at or we might be scared to say or that are just a little bit too taboo but make us smile or laugh when we really put it in center stage. We yearn for that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even what I hear too, it's there's truth. And then, there, then there's the, the lighter aspect of truth, right? The more humorous, the more diabolical and cosmic <laughs> tapestry of ridiculousness that we see going yeah. on. And it's, come on, do we got to be so serious, right? Like wow. I see everything in the world happening right now. And I'm one of those people where it's, 
number one, I'm not fully educated and sure I can share my opinion, but what is it really going to do? Number one, yeah. which yeah. yes, could be beneficial. I understand. And if I'm coming from an ignorant place and an uneducated place, or maybe even from a, from an untethered place, then what is my role? Can I get more educated? Can I actually start becoming the filter myself yeah. first to watch what I'm consuming to ensure that I'm not getting sucked into the propaganda, but at the same time, recognizing that the stuff in the world that we see exploding right now happens everywhere, every single day. And the only reason we get sucked into it is because it's broadcasted, you know, yeah. and there are, yeah. of course, greater agendas. And that's another conversation to have. And we have choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. What are we consuming and what are we creating? It's the conversation I'm with my daughter all the time. Like, yeah. Hey, for every hour you're consuming, you should be creating two more hours. Hell yeah. So let's put that to use. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. And that's natural in kids. There's that NASA creativity test that, and I, I've been working on a book for about two years now. So I would, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the, just the gruesome and mind blowing experience that comes with writing. <laughs> but one of the things that I would, I really wrote around is the impact of our school systems. And there's this creativity test for anybody's not familiar that they did decades ago, NASA wanted to identify geniuses as early as possible in the education system. They brought in a researcher and they started running these tests and they created this assessment and they found that kindergartners had a 98% of them were flying off the charts with creative genius. Oh my gosh, there are a lot of creative geniuses in kindergarten. But what they found was with each passing year in school that went down. And by the time they got into eighth grade, that number was below 10%. And the, the conclusion the researchers actually had was that school was making them that way, that school was eroding their creative genius. And so kids have that a lot more naturally than we often do because of the very systems that we are existing within that pull us out of that energy and that way of thinking and that way of relating with the world. Oh, man, you got to send me that study after dude, I got this you. or put it in the notes or something, dude. Yeah, we'll, we'll drop that in the notes. Yeah. Is the creativity test actually something that is a working model that they're continuing to use even in testing now? Yeah. And they've redone that study over and over again, consistently finding the same findings. Whoa. I'd be very intrigued to see what the like 20 to 40 year old population is at, like the, the, yeah. the mean average of that. Yeah. Fascinating. Because creativity is fundamentally, at least what I consider to be, the pathway through, through any aspect of suffering you can imagine. Right. There's a right. solution, but to get to a solution, it requires creativity to have 100%. your pain channeled into art. It requires a creative, um, energy, a creative format to put the subjective thing we're experiencing into the objective nature of art or whatever that might be, whether it's a sound or a, or a stroke or a color or a tone, right? It's fascinating. Like creativity can solve the world's problems. I'm 100% sure about that. <laughs> 100%. And dude, what's interesting, I'm going to see if I can land this plane that's in my head right now. But I'm seeing this actual like co convergence of ideas that are really related to what had me initially reach out wanting to pull you onto the podcast, which was talking about Arcadia and festival and the nature art and science of festival and like festival and art right now. And the thing that's coming up for me, again, let me see if I can land this, which is we raise our kids through these systems 
where we intentionally and systematically teach them to suppress what they experience within their inner world in favor of performing and producing according to how the person with the most power in the room wants them to behave. Mm. And then we are surprised when teen depression, anxiety, suicide, self-harm, and violence begin to rise. We're surprised to see that a majority of young people today report a sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness in their life. We're surprised to see that we are now the loneliest human beings the world has probably ever seen and that overdoses continue to skyrocket and suicides continue to skyrocket. And it's not a mystery. Like it's not an oddity. It's not a, a weird random thing. It is a rational, logical outcome of the ways that we are living, the ways we are teaching our children, the ways we are relating with each other, the technologies we're utilizing, the places we go to learn, the ways that we choose to communicate, and the way that information is shared to us and with us. It pulls us out of our connection with ourselves, it dissects us from connecting our inner world with the world that surrounds us, and we become mm -hmm. dependent on getting this attention and validation from other people in order to feel a sense of safety because we have eroded our capacity to create confidence within us. And we start to avoid and fear these experiences within us. And then all of that makes it more likely that we're going to feel more anxious, have more depression, and create and perpetuate more manipulation and violence. And I think we're seeing a lot of that play out where we have a lot of adults who are feeling disconnected from themselves. We have groups of people who feel polarized. And what happens is it's hard for us to even know what really matters to us. It's hard for us to have hope and trust that things can matter to us because we haven't learned how to really feel our emotions and know what makes us come most alive. What am I willing to stand for? When we're not willing to stand for anything, it's really easy to be hijacked and twisted and manipulated. And so now what we have are these people who live in this world with these communication technologies that can promise you a little bit of belonging. Like, mm -hmm. here's a cause, and I'm going to sell it to you rigidly and say this is the only thing that, it, that could possibly be true. And then you start to buy into it. It gives you the sense of meaning and motivation and togetherness. And it's hijacking the very problem that it is actually creating to then create more division. And it's like this weird cycle that's going on. So I don't know if any of that mm. made any sense, but that's what is coming up for me right now. Yeah, I've got chills running through my whole body, man, because a lot of that resonates so deeply because I see my 10-year-old daughter going through this exact thing. Mm. And I remember at her age, and I even wrote in my book where I once tried to end my life at seven, this like meaninglessness and purposelessness and recognizing the impact of the indoctrination and something that you actually reached out to me when, on the story, there was a snippet in there about, I don't have enough space for elitism anymore, right? This aspect of elitism, whether people want to classify that as spiritual elitism or the global elitism or even just the authoritarianism that we're seeing through geopolitical conflicts, 
through our systems, whether it's the judicial system or the school system. But what you're pointing to is not a mystery, right? It's not right. rocket surgery. That's what my drill sergeants right. used to say. Right. It's very <laughs> apparent of what the roots are, right? In the school system, at least. And coupling that with the lack of fathers in homes to yeah. the lack of conversations that are grounded in reason surrounding mental health, because there's a lot of opinionated arguments of mental health, right? There's a lot of bias around, oh, this is the only way, right? Like when somatic therapies blew up, that is the only way you're going to do it. And it's almost like CBT and all of these other different treatments and options became finite. They became not so much important. And we forgot that everything serves a role. You know what I mean? So everything that you're saying right now <clears throat> is incredibly important. And it did make sense because we're starting to see the evolution and where the world is going. And now we have this like portable connection at our fingertips, not realizing it's not real. Mm. It's not real. The likes, the comments, the shares, the saves, none of that shit is real. It's just dopamine to keep you hooked and actually keeps you in disconnection. Right. So it's the paradox we're seeing right now. And there's yeah. opportunity for sure. And conversations like this make it very apparent that something needs to change, right? Yes, we understand collectively and independently, like first and foremost, like radical fucking responsibility. Like 100%. the journey of truth, always. 100%. Well, and, and that's actually what I feel like is what comes up to me as the clear solution, which is we're all on the same page right now that the world is fucked, right? That there's been this massive decline in our trust in institutions, government, news, banks, and understandably think that we have caught people lying to us, manipulating us. And so there's been this decline in institutions. At the same time, we have amazing medical and communication technology, the greatest technology that the world has probably ever seen. We can get into some younger, driest stuff. For the most part, we've got better technology than any other humans ever have. And mm -hmm. it, it's amazing. We're all walking around with these supercomputers that are smarter than the first rocket that went to the moon. And yet, things feel off. We're so lonely and stressed and mental illness is climbing and we're aware of that. The thing then that comes up is we can fall into this game of thinking that the solution is to identify the oppressors and to destroy them. And that is the way forward. And then what ends up happening is the villain just keeps changing. We just keep mm -hmm. recasting different villains. And so what I see happening right now with like the Israel Hamas thing is that we people are getting so committed to wanting to cast a very black and white story mm -hmm. because that is comfortable for our psyche to then deal with the uncertainty and the and the pain of it. It would just be so much simpler if it was a very clear Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker situation. Yeah, absolutely, man. And even as you're saying that the word right, revolution is not revelations. And mm. I think that's the misconception. Right. And even biblically speaking, and I'm not religious by any means, but I do study a lot of different texts because it has a lot of wisdom there. 
And even I once heard that Revelations was less about predicting and more about preparing. It's not the, the anticipation of the destruction or the anticipation of the slaughtering or the anticipation that a greater power is going to wipe all of humanity off the planet, whether that be biblical or nuclear. It's the recognition that we see what's happening and we have the opportunity to prepare ourselves. And even circling this back to Arcadia and music festival, science, art, technology, it's community, right? Mm -hmm. The solution is when we come back to these roots of community, we step into the greater recognition that there is no oppressor. There's the perceived oppressor. There's this idea of who's oppressing, but really what you spoke to, when we recognize that there's an oppressor, we immediately become the victim. And Kaplan's drama triangle. (laughs) If you're the victim, there will always be a villain. And it's the recognition that we are the heroes of our own story and our communities when coming together. It's like the Marvel superhero squad showing up and instead of avenging, right, whatever cause might be greater, it's the avengement of self, right? It's, it's the path of redemption and we're not redeeming our sins and we're not redeeming our evils. We're not redeeming who we are to prove our worth or to produce something in the world. Like we mentioned earlier in the conversation, we're simply coming back home and establishing what home really means, right? Because there's a lot of distrust, like we mentioned with the government and real estate and (laughs) inflation and all these different, very complex issues that can't be simplified in, in in a matter of one conversation because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. 100%. We're seeing the self-fulfilled prophecy of a society who's been stuck in victimhood. 100%. One of the things that stuck out to me about what you just said was we can't fall into the trap of simplifying. That it's not that there aren't evil forces at play. It's that it's not as simple as dominating and conquering one battle or one war that what we're talking about here is the need for a revolution of responsibility that it is a a reclaiming of sovereignty and power that it's not about defeating them over there it's about us owning our responsibility to learn how to connect with ourselves to define what matters to us and to do work that then helps others to empower each other and to step into the truth that it's our job. It's our job to find ways to empower ourselves and one another. And this more localized sense of a return to power can then allow us to build better systems that transform the ways that we live so that we aren't stuck in these perpetual cycles of pursuing power over people and instead are creating power with people and power Mm -hmm. for people to make other changes in the world. But it starts with that radical responsibility for us to take care of ourselves and each other and to stop feeling like everything is about trying to label the villain and attack them and to stay in attack mode. Yeah. Yeah, because the brutal truth too is that Some people are just looking for a fight, right? 
And I'm a little bit more on that side. <laughs> if I'm being completely <laughs> honest. Those are tough roots to shake for me. And with that, I recognize there's something inside of me that wants the fight, that mm -hmm. craves the fight, right? This sadistic, masochistic pleasure cycle of mine. Mm. And because I'm aware of it, I know not to perpetuate it. Mm. Or I know to put that aggression into a healthier place, right? And there's this idea that aggression in the world, it's immediately associated to violence, mm. right? Like <clears throat> been doing a work with a lot of men for a lot of years. And one of the common things that I hear is I'm afraid to be aggressive because people will be afraid of me or they fear that I'll become violent or my lady or my woman or my wife or my partner, whatever. They don't feel safe when I get angry or when I get aggressive, but aggressiveness is not a bad thing. If we were not aggressive, nothing would get built. Nothing would get changed. <laughs> so if we can recognize that we're, yes, feeling aggression, because I feel like to some degree, we all are to some degree, whether that's aggression towards the situation or the circumstance, whether that's aggression towards people in our life and how they're responding, whether that's aggression from the inside and not having a place or a space or a voice even to speak out what's happening internally. And where does that go? Where does aggression misdirected go? Yeah. It goes inside. And then we wonder why we have a society that's filled with rage. And then we start seeing how that's passed down. And we spoke to that in the school system. Yep. Right. And the violence that happens in children and not just towards each other, but really how that's directed inward. And that's why we have, at least what I believe to be true, is one of the fundamental components of the epidemic of, of suicide. Right. I, I consider 100%. suicide an epidemic. I'm and if we had a society where aggression and feelings and emotions and expression were fully allowed and we were able to have constructive conversations rather than destructive reactions to people's perspectives, things might look a little different. Yeah. A lot yeah. different, actually. A lot different. I, I want that world. And there's a truth that we all really have to accept uh, in order to really commit to the work, which is there's really two choices when it comes to processing our emotions you can find the ways and the places to feel and express them, or they will find their own way out. And it will almost always be more destructive and cause more harm to yourself and others. It's find a way to act out the aggression or the aggression turns inward and spreads everywhere. I was telling them, if you don't go to the bathroom, Right. <laughs> she always comes out sideways somehow. <laughs> it's like ayahuasca, right? It's, it's... And, and trust me, you don't want it to come out when you're in the grocery store or while you're driving. <laughs> exactly. So it's, and also don't sleep in the urinal. Mm. Don't sleep in the porta potty. Mm. Right. Move it, but don't sit in it. Right. We know 80 to 90 seconds. That's the amount of time you have when you feel something to move it.
And then everything after that becomes this subjective nature of labeling and reality and all these other things. So mm. it's feel the thing, give it a breath, give it a sound, give it a movement and move it in the direction that's going to facilitate growth and liberation. Because that's the key to sovereignty, what we talked about. Autonomy, right? The reclamation of power yep. or the reclamation of perceived power, right? Because we are power. I don't necessarily believe we give it away or we take it, mm. right? We are power and we are always generating power because we have these beautiful electronic units of our body. And with that recognition, we can move it and not only move it, but fucking sometimes catapult it mm. where it needs to go, where it wants to go. And, and that's the desire. And that's the power of desire. Well, and I'm curious about this piece for you, because as I think about myself, I know I spent years after I really decided to make a change in my life, after I struggled with addiction and really came to terms with how much struggle I had gone through in my life and the real chasm between who I was and who I wanted to be. I spent years really chasing down knowledge and like trying to like fix myself. But it really wasn't until I actually went to my very first festival. And had, I had gone through grad school as a therapist. I had been studying meditation for a long while. And I was meditating like it was a, a vitamin to take every morning. Like it was going to do something to me or it was going to keep certain things away. But it wasn't really about connecting with myself. It was more so like a stress management attempt. And then I went to my first music festival and it had been years since I had done anything other than drinking alcohol. I hadn't done drugs again. And one of my friends was like, look, like we're, we have a bunch of Molly. We're going to, we have a, a bunch of MDMA <laughs> and like, I really think you should do this. And, and I, I obviously had a magical, wonderful time. But one of the things that I realized while I was there was like, everything immediately clicked. It was like years of work all of a sudden in one moment started to click. And then I had a, a gruesome integration process for the weeks and months afterwards. But in those few days at that festival, connecting with people, connecting with music, having these moments of collective effervescence and bliss and pun intended ecstasy, that it gave me this willingness to turn more towards the deep and dark shadow of my psyche because it, there was a payoff suddenly. It was like, oh, by trying to numb the hard stuff, I'm blocking out this shit. And maybe if I can find a way to really relate with myself differently, I can find a way to feel more like this without the drugs even. So I'm curious for you, what, what fueled the hope for you that allowed you to really turn toward the, the pain and process it through your journey? Man, it's a loaded question. <laughs> it, is. it is right and and it all, i only say that because it wasn't just one event and it's like the compounding of experiences yep. to where at a certain point right knee deep in heroin addiction on the verge of losing my life somehow whether in dead or in prison after getting shot at all kinds of crazy stuff happening in my younger years before i was even technically an adult legally and enrolling in the military and, and taking the steps necessary, even though I was stuck, right, in pain and I was masking it and I was trying to find and source these false strengths through false idols, 
through these false personas of gangs and military and bodybuilding and these different life paths that I chose. And it wasn't really until I hit rock bottom in 2017, where I pretty much lost almost all function of my hand. And that process was gruesome, <laughs> to say the least, four t flexor tendon laceration, a ripped artery nerve, still can't fully close my hand. And as a mixed martial artist since five years old, a bodybuilder doing everything so physically and aggressively my entire life, but really having to sit with myself and refuse the medications because I couldn't trust myself with the substance or with the chemicals that were offered through pharmaceuticals. And I chose to use marijuana. And then I started going deeper into medicine work and psychedelic work and you know, these compounded experiences, you know, from 2017 to about 2019, 2020, right? When the pandemic hit, yeah, like it was three years of compounded experiences that just created this sense of what I call painful hyper-awareness mm. because I had all the awareness and I was taking action in a lot of different ways, but I wasn't really integrating it right? I wasn't really putting it into motion. I wasn't really necessarily creating anything. I was just accumulating information. Like I was accumulating disease for all of those years. Cause we know that accumulation is the first step in all of disease <laughs> and dis-ease, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's years and years and days and minutes of compounded experiences over time, undigested. So when I really stopped when the pandemic hit and it's, oh, everybody has to stop. <laughs> you know, I finally started digesting things and I really started to click like an experience you had years and years of information and knowledge that yep. has been accumulated, just finally started calcifying into these small sources of wisdom in my body. Yep. And then I started being able to pick up not only on my own pattern recognitions, but other people. That's when I started forming mm. this what I call to be the bullshit barometer every time I go into a room and it's, oh, this is what they say. And this is what they've been talking about that after you've done the work and you're doing the work, you recognize what it looks like when others are in pain and you can feel it and you don't absorb it, right? I was no longer absorbing collective pain. I was no longer absorbing other people's energy as some people might say. Because I was able to like really discern what is mine, what is not. Mm. And because of that commitment, which was vigorous <laughs> and painful in so many ways, after several failed relationships and court battles and things like that and custody cases and just the story of why is everything happening to me? Why can I never get a break? And like finally stopping asking those questions and realizing like, Life is not happening to me or for me. It's happening with me, alongside me, and through me. And if that's the case, then I'm here for it. Mm. And then it's all the stress just melted away. <laughs> and of course, I still have stress, right? We have use stress in positive ways to facilitate growth in the body and the nervous system and the psychology and all these things. Yep. But I, my perception of reality changed. And, and very long answer long here. Yeah. If it weren't for those compounded experiences up until 2017 and the compounded experience that started to create this mixture of madness within me, then, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now. 
but it was the subtle recognition in every moment that passed where I actually felt something. And instead of numbing it, which is an active process, I chose to feel it. I chose to move it. I chose to find something to channel my artwork into. That artistry is the creative flow of integration. It's the process of becoming whole and making something unconscious to the point where we're not so hyper fixated on it and we're no longer working on it because we've already become it. All right, you got you to gotta hit, hit us with that line one more time. <laughs> that artistry is the creative flow of integration mm. and it's the process of becoming whole and making something unconscious to where we're no longer doing the work. We have become the work. Oh, well, and I'm what I'm curious about is what you might say to someone who right now says something like, we are in crisis. There are big and important and scary things happening. How could I possibly care about art right now? How could I possibly <laughs> care about music or festival? Like I, like people are being murdered. Bombs are going off. Like uh, there's a there's an election looming, and there are all of these things to worry about. How and why should I possibly care about art or music or a festival? So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. One, what you might say there, and two, what some of your thinking was of mm -hmm. in in the midst of last month, where real tragedy and yeah. uh, terror was was looming and spiraling and the world's trying to make sense of it that within you you had the wisdom of i think this is actually what i need right now mm -hmm. so there's two things it's one defining art mm. and the definition of art because art doesn't always necessarily have to mean music or painting or anything that we may have learned to be art as children right what i say and speak and what i wrote in my book too is that your art is your darkness and it's choreographed into your action. It is the offering of you to the world. And it's the offering of your expression to those who need to hear it. And those who need to hear it are the ones who feel like they don't have a voice. And the second piece there is that this internal dialogue around crisis, right? It's a cry out for support it's a cry out for substance it's a cry out for meaning right it's a cry on the inside that is being reflected back to us from reality mm. so when we actually shift the internal dialogue then it's no longer further exacerbated by the norms that impose the arbitrary confines which are often cloaked in the disguise of our mortality and that disguise of mortality is what dictates the boundaries of our self-expression. And when we see what's happening in the world, and we see the death, we see the terror, we see all this stuff, for those who have never experienced death in their life, whether that be from a loved one or a near-death experience or whatever the same, whatever the experience might be, whenever we see stuff like that, we question our own mortality. And we fear more about what we haven't done in this life more than what we can do about it. Mm. And that's the experience I had right, with my mom. Last year, I questioned my mortality. And I said, I am going to create something that will not only leave a legacy for me and my children, 
but my legacy and her legacy will live through my words, live through my art. And that doesn't have to be anything. It can be a book. It can be a podcast. It can be a fucking popsicle picture that you leave for your child that they're going to carry for the rest of their life. It could be the cry that you have for humanity. It can be your social media posts. It can be anything. You can go out and carve what you believe in and what you believe to be true in the side of your house for everyone to see. And then it becomes art. It's your pain in living form. Yeah. And it's almost because there are such important things happening in the world, because there is so much pain, what we need are people to be at their deepest and their fullest and committing to continuing to explore what makes me come alive, what is beaming within me, demanding to be seen and expressed, and how can I touch that and honor that? is essential to being able to have any sort of impact on the things that we see as tragic, important right now. Yeah, right now. And what are we able to create right now? Crisis doesn't get resolved through inaction. If there's a crisis in the world, then how are we managing the crisis at home? Are we managing the crisis of our community on how can we directly impact those who are around us versus trying to solve all the world's problems? Because if everyone were to focus on the intentional and direct and deliberate impact on the community around you within a five mile radius, if everybody does that, it's a ripple effect. Less global, more local. Amen. Well, <laughs> Nathan, dude. Two questions for you. One, if someone's listening and they're like, I need more of this Nathan guy in my life. One, where can they find you? And when should they be on the lookout for the book to be released? Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really great conversation. I really hope it impacts so many people that listen to this. I'm excited for it to come out. Yeah, first and foremost, people can find me at Nathan Kohlerman pretty much everywhere, every social media platform you can think of. And yeah, they can go to my website, newintention.com, which is N-E-U, intention, and nathankohlerman.com and spiritualpsychopath.io will be out in January. And the book should actually be releasing, I want to say, quarter one, 2024. It should be done with the editing and publishing process by then. Hell yeah. And I've read the early drafts of chapter one, two, and three, and I'm loving it. So I'll, I'll be on the lookout. Nathan, last question to leave our listeners with. If I could guarantee you that everyone in the world right now in this moment was listening and they could truly and deeply hear you, what would you say to them? Stay in your prayers and trust. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. <laughs>